Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife. Any of you that are regular listeners will know that I am passionate about food and growing my own food in particular on my allotment, um, but also from some previous episodes about sustainability and food provenance and growing local and the impact of our kind of food decisions on the environment and climate change and biodiversity. So I'm really, really excited to have the guest on that we have today. His name is Connor Gallagher and he is founder of a startup, really exciting startup called allotme.co.uk that I spotted on social media through some clever uh, marketing a while ago and got in touch with Connor and said, you have to come on as a guest and uh, talk to us about this because it sounds really exciting to me. So Connor, thank you for agreeing to come on and have a chat with us. Yeah, no, thanks very much. Uh, thanks for reaching out. And uh, I think it's a good conversation to have. So the more Definitely. people are hearing it, the, the better. Absolutely. Absolutely. So allotme.co.uk it is a startup that's exploring solutions for sustainable food uh, resourcing in our cities, but also kind of looking at research and development in urban agriculture. So can you tell us a little bit, Connor, about um, kind of your background, first of all, and then why urban agriculture is something that was an interest of yours? Yeah, no problem. Um, well, my background is architecture primarily. So I qualified as an architect a few years ago in London. Um, I've probably been down here for about five years now. Uh, before that, I was studying in Glasgow. I've lived in New York and studied in Belfast in architecture. It's a uh, long old slogs for those that know. Um, yeah. So I think it's uh, seven years typically. I think it took me about nine years by the end. I had a couple of, a couple of years in between things like right. that. So my background's always been architecture, but I have worked for urban designers um, in America, I worked for an urban design firm and I've had an interest in landscape and um, yeah, how you can sort of activate um, spaces in the city in a different way. So there's there's been lots that sort of subliminally fed into the idea of a lot me along the way. Um, for example, I, I, while I was in uh, America, I took a sort of break after I finished uh, my sort of internship out there. Yeah. And I ended up uh, helping out a friend who I met through rugby to set up some vegetable stands in the streets of uh, Queens. And he had one in the Upper East Side of Manhattan as well. So it was him and his brother would just uh, go out to a farm in Jersey and buy a little produce, put it in the back of a van and sell it on a table with some nice sort of uh, timber buckets as a, you know, straight farm to table uh, stand outside like an Italian restaurant kind of- or mini farmer's market kind of vibe yeah exactly yeah they just would uh, go up and talk to a restaurant owner and say you know do you want to do this and it would you know increase the awareness of the restaurant and make people think about the restaurant in a different way so they get more customers and yeah brilliant it's a interesting thing it was a bit of a character building as well you know standing at a table all day in a, in a heat wave uh <laughs> meeting all sorts of people in manhattan <laughs> yeah but you know what the, the people in in the in the neighborhood that i was in was in queens and there was lots of greek people oh, and okay. um yeah. well, people from everywhere really but they're always so friendly i think they took pity on a pale irishman standing out in a heat wave <laughs> and would always come up and offer me drinks or just hand me a gallon of water in some cases yeah yeah very good um so yeah there was there was little um hints of sort of uh, subliminal inspiration along the way um and then 
I suppose, yeah, I became sort of more clued into that I might do something a bit different from architecture, sort of a sidestep from it, um, about three years ago in London, or maybe two years ago. Uh, so two years ago, I entered a competition um, for a startup idea at the university where I graduated to become an architect. Yeah. So the sort of third degree down the line, which I was doing at London Met. Um, and they sent out an email saying, you know, if you got a startup idea, submit it. I think it was for all alumni, staff and students of London Met. So it's called like the Big Ideas Challenge. Yeah. And I think at the time I had two ideas. And one was a sort of early version of, of a lot me and another was an architecture thing. Entered with a lot me and basically ended up uh, as the winner of the social impact category. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting process to go through um, and hone an idea and then pitch it to people for the first time. Uh, so that was the sort of start of it, but the, uh, yeah, the whole idea came from basically me walking around London and bumping into, you know, allotments like yours and having never seen any in Belfast or from, or even in Glasgow to be fair. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm from Republic of Ireland and, and they don't really exist or they didn't in my time, certainly, um, like they do over here. Yeah. It's just on a different scale, isn't it? Even when you go to the cities like Belfast or Glasgow, there's just, people still do have space on the whole, um, in yeah. comparison to cities like, you know, London, especially. Yeah. So, but, before we get into kind of the, the problem of, you know, um, available space to grow and things like that, just tell us um, for, for the listeners, what is Allot Me? What was this idea that you pitched in this competition and won for? What does it do? What is it? And what's it what's it for? Yeah, uh, no, good question. Uh, well, I, I suppose the simplest way I've always described it is that the core of the business is an Airbnb for gardens, specifically for the purpose of growing food. Brilliant. So we're pairing unused space in the city with uh, keen vegetable growers. Um, and that really stemmed from seeing what the demand was and noticing, you know, myself bumping into them in London and then realizing that there was just no way to get one for me at the time. Um, you know, all the waiting lists are closed and even yeah. just finding information about any type of growing space. Like I bumped into, I had to do some hard search and through Facebook groups and various avenues to even, you know, get a contact. So you were looking so, yourself once you, you saw allotments, you thought, oh, that's something I'd like to do. And then you realized it's actually really difficult to find, to get a space, right? Yeah, exactly. I've always had sort of plants around the house, but I started getting a few kind of growing plants in or lettuces and things like that. And we had a balcony at the time, so I really didn't yeah. have any space for myself. So I kind of, I suppose, you know, people say, you know, a, a good business one that where you're trying to solve a problem for yourself. So that was, that was me in the first yeah, instance. Yeah. Luckily now we have a, a large garden that we share with our neighbors above and below. So I get to, I get that exposure for myself, but yeah, at the core of the business, that, that, that's it. Pairing on use space uh, in the city with vegetable growers. So that could be anything from a person who's got their own private garden. They've got maybe a side gate or front gardens or uh, seem to be a lot of people. Uh, or it could be anything from like a big grass lawn in the middle of a council estate or, you know, the perimeter um areas to a velodrome in one case right right i love the description airbnb for gardeners <laughs> that's pretty pretty cool so essentially it's like a digital platform it's a website that you can go on whether you have space yourself or whether you're looking for space to grow is that it yeah exactly it's it's a marketplace platform i suppose the best description it's almost like a a dating platform for gardeners and landowners yeah. <laughs> to get together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tend to lead with the Airbnb one just to not uh, you know, yeah. give people too many seconds to think about that one. 
I was going to say, you don't want to get into the, the Tinder, Tinder for uh, description. Yeah, for there's all sorts of problems yeah. with that kind of yeah. platform. Yeah, good. So we'll stick with Airbnb yeah. then. <laughs> cool. Well, look, I've had a look around. Um, as I said, uh, your marketing is good uh, because I was targeted on Facebook and um, it immediately caught my eye. And I loved the website. I had a look at it and I played around with, you know, pretending to be uh, um, listing my own space versus wanting a plot. Um, it's really, really well done. So you're in the kind of early stages. You haven't done a full launch yet, Connor. It's kind of um, soft launch. And, and I guess COVID has maybe held you back a little bit in, in doing that hard launch to date, has it? Yeah, exactly. We were uh, on track to do some kind of launch um, around springtime, naturally. And obviously, when lockdown happened, uh, we well just before lockdown, we were going you know, back to basics door to door, signing up hosts. Um, where we knew that people had gardens uh, and uh, yeah, getting them, getting them signed up at the door in some cases. So that went to uh, you know extreme halt, like a lot of businesses uh, yeah. with lockdown. And so really just adjusting and I kind of took a moment to think about what would be the best thing. So we started doing a bit of marketing to show what the idea was on the other side, just to find out where the demand was essentially. Um, yeah. there are, you know, waiting lists for allotments in every borough in London, but the vast majority are just simply closed. So I, I think like personally, if you're a 20 something year old living in the city and you see a 40 year waiting list, like in Camden, for example, really, you're just not going to even put your name down. Yeah. Oh my God. And I saw on your Instagram um, that the average in London is 15 year waiting list. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like take a place like um, Wandsworth where they've got a private company managing the um, the waiting list. So it's well, that that is there is good, but it's anything from, I think the minimum was about two to three up to 18. And that's in a sort of well-managed one. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's crazy the amount of, uh, amount of demand rather, but I think personally that the demand that's already there is soft. You know, if you actually put up, you know, access, easy access and um, availability to people, they'll show you that they do want, there is much more demand for growing spaces from young people and well, from all ages, actually. Yeah, yeah. And presumably it's not just going to be London. You'd like to take this nationally and, and um, open it up to, to all over the country, would you? Yeah, I think the great thing about uh marketplace platforms like AllotMe is that it it's natural to scale it. Um, you know, the, the formula is the same no matter where it is. It's yeah. supply and demand. And I think you want to start where the problem is the greatest. So in London, you know, you've got one in eight households don't have a garden across the UK, but in London, that number goes up to one in five. Right. Okay. So so, so I think my, my plan is always to try and attack where the, uh, where the problem is greatest and where you can actually give value back to people in, in the best way. Make the most impact. Yeah, yeah, good idea. Um, so we'll get into kind of how it works and, and all that in a little bit. But I think thinking bigger picture and thinking, yeah. you know, the food problem that we have and everything. This past week, I'm sure you watched uh, mm -hmm. Extinction, The Facts by David Attenborough, the documentary. Um, if anyone hasn't watched it, strongly encourage you to but it kind of makes it very very clear that you know we're all being asked to look more closely at where we where our food comes from and what we're eating um why would you say connor that's so important now yeah so i think you know covid has uh, thrown a, a spanner into the works in some cases but in the long term i think the the patterns are the same so it's estimated by 2050 that 70 percent of the earth's population will be living in cities some estimate that's higher, some estimate that's sooner. But if we take it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. 
I mean, we're at quite a high percentage as it is, but up to 70% is crazy. If we take London as an example by itself over the next 10 years, I think it's something like 77,000 new people will move to London every year, which is like a growth rate of like 9% every year. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. And I guess with that, with kind of increasing urbanization, people are becoming more detached from food and how it's produced and where it's produced. Yeah, it's it's harder to relate to, I think, whenever you're just buying it to, you know, from a Sainsbury's or a Tesco every week. But, you know, sometimes when you look in the back of the labels and, and it's, you know, onions traveling from Israel or, you know, apples coming from America, you know, 10,000 miles in some cases. So, yeah. It's, it, it is, it is crazy. Um, the amount of, I suppose, again, um, COVID has been an accelerant in highlighting some of these issues that, you know, the average store-bought food travels 1500 miles. Um, and you know, when it comes to fruit and vegetables in particular, over half uh, of the UK's food is imported. Yeah. Yeah. So it's racking up air miles. It's churning out, you know, carbon from fossil fuels, from transport. Um, yeah, and and to, in order to travel that far, there's there's so many preservatives that are put into the food. So, I think you know the biggest, the first thing that drew me to trying to you know fulfill the need of of people that want to garden, and the lack of space is it, just unlocking that that relationship with food in the first place. Yeah, yeah, um, and I guess it's all well and good to say you know buy local and and buy organic and things like that, but that can be quite difficult um, in our busy lives. And it can be quite expensive in the supermarkets and things. So I totally agree with you. One solution is grow some stuff yourself. Like we, we've chatted, haven't we, about uh, growing or sorry, cooking with whatever is growing on your allotment at the time. It's great, a great privilege yeah. to go up there and have an evening like this time after work. I would normally go up and I would just pick what's available there and I'd make up my dinner based on that. It's a great, yeah. It's a great way to eat, but it's also very satisfying in that you know, I'm not going down, down to Tesco and buying, you know, uh, tomatoes from Mexico <laughs> during the winter or, or things like that. It's yeah, adding to exactly. all those food miles. No, it, 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 exactly. There's a great catharsis that comes from just planting the thing. I mean, we've got quite a quite a few double digits of fruit and veg out in the back that are, you know, starting to flower or fruit at the minute. And just, I said to my partner looking in the garden that even if nothing came from any of the produce, I've still thoroughly enjoyed just what, like, attending to them watching them grow and learning about what works and what doesn't yeah um but yeah there's a great satisfaction in walking to the end of the garden picking some lettuce and putting it in a sandwich straight away yeah and it's it's fun isn't it it's like it's great to see the the produce of your hard work but i think also it connects you with your food and it makes you think about you know should i buy uh tomatoes from mexico or shall i go without tomatoes for this part of the year that they're not in season in the uk exactly maybe exactly yeah yeah. And um, big question. I mean, you know, we talk about people being disconnected from food, being disconnected from nature. Talk a lot about that on this podcast. Um, how do you think we combat that? Like where where does it start? Is it is it basically kind of overhauling the school curriculum and starting to kind of start trying with school kids again to, to reconnect them with where our food comes from? Yeah, I think that you just need to put the message in front of people and create access for everyone. I think that's at its core. Um, if you think about some of the most, you know, successful messaging or companies out there, there are things that you can have in your pocket to begin with to get access to on your phone, yeah. on a computer, um, or you walk past and you see it, you know. Um, 
and I think that it, that goes into so many different verticals. So education is definitely one. Um, you know, there's a bigger, there's a lot more issues in trying to change the curriculums in schools to do that. So I think you just have to be um, tactical and, uh, you know, a bit of guerrilla tactics to just, you know, introduce workshops into schools or, or, or have more spaces by the very nature of having a community garden, you know, down the street from a, uh, yeah. a primary school, there's going to be some engagement. Kids are going to ask questions about it. So, it, you know, it definitely puts it at the forefront of our mind. Um, and for me, you know, going through the experience of seeing the growing space in the city and not having access to it um, or not just, just struggling to get in touch with somebody, that was a real learning point for me and uh, about what it could be if it was accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And these like little pop up um, areas for growing food can be really, really engaging for, for people who might not have an interest otherwise. So I've seen it. One of my friends who I previously interviewed on, on the podcast, Mark, um, is involved with Forest Flora over in East London. Mm -hmm. And they support a lot of community gardens, but also a, a little bit of guerrilla gardening as well, where people have taken over, you know, a bed that was kind of just a bunch of weeds and, and they're starting to grow things on it. They've got, you know, signs up and the local community are getting involved. I think that's really powerful, actually, to just show people what can be done in an urban setting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we, when I sort of first went down the, uh, the route after the competition of starting a lot me, I wanted to do a lot of learning about, you know, what makes a successful community, uh, uh, garden. And I started learning from sort of vertical farms and interviewing suppliers of, of everything that was at the forefront of, you know, how we grow food in the city. I think like learning from some of the community gardens in particular, you find that the most successful ones are the ones that are active long-term, um, you know, that aren't, uh, just a year or two, because often you're relying on the enthusiasm of, of just, you know, a commit small committee of people. Yeah. Um, so it's, that is, that works in the city in a lot of ways because you do have a kind of transitional population a lot of the time, especially for young people. Yeah. But, um, one of the things that, uh, that I thought, you know, that we saw that was successful in, in a previous garden, there's one in Glasgow where I did my, uh, my postgraduate and they had individual beds that they just allocated to people on a seasonal rotation. And the garden has thrived over 10 years now since, uh, since before I started uni there. Yeah. And they've, they've gone out and built a cafe. They've, um, they put on all sorts of performances in the space as well. It's, um, it, it's really thrived. It's a real hub. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think part of that was just keeping it open to, to anybody to walk into. And part of that was actually say, you know, giving some ownership and purpose to the people that were coming there and engaging in, in the space. So absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to be learned from, from sort of real little pillars of, of small communities who are starting those gardens. Yeah. So from the website, I get the impression there's kind of two arms. One is the kind of, you know, the Airbnb matching people up with space and, and um, growers and things. And the other one you talk about is research and development um, in urban agriculture. Can you talk to us a little bit about that or what, what you've got planned kind of um, for the future on that? Yeah, side? no problem. Yeah. So I, I briefly mentioned that, you know, we went on a bit of learning to interview some people who are at the forefront of sort of urban farming in, in whole. So yeah, yeah, there's community gardens, there's allotments, the, real, the more traditional sides. Then there's the new side where there's a lot of money and venture capital pouring into the world of vertical farms, indoor farms, you know, down here in South London. There is a farm under the Clapham Common Underground Station, or just next to it. That's right. Yeah. So it's an old, yeah. So a growing underground. So they they were in fact one of the case studies. Um, I sort of produced the 
series of uh, blogs that were just interviews of different sectors of, of all these uh, emerging markets. And you know, it's really interesting what they were doing. So you kind of find out what the biggest challenges that they they have, uh, what the biggest challenges they see going forward, um, and what works for them as well, right? So yeah. uh, the big argument with uh, indoor vertical farms is that um, essentially it's still it's much more efficient than it was in terms of the LED lighting sources, yeah. but it still requires energy, um, a, a hell of a lot of energy, and that sort of increases whenever it's automated. So in terms of comparing it to industrial agriculture, it's, you know, leaps and bounds ahead, but there's still lots of issues with it and why people aren't, you know, fully committing to it and why you're not hearing about every big chain grocery store, you know, supplying all their food from this right away. Yeah. It takes time, doesn't it, to, to tweak it and to um, produce at scale and, and um, a profitable model and, and so on. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, it's just learning from that about why why is this not accessible to the mass market yet or what why is it not why is it not going to be in the next five years or, or how long will it take yeah so part of that was um part of all that that learning experience was to help find you know what the needs would be for the platform itself so that's the sort of software solution that has you know really taken the um center stage of of a lot me as a whole at the minute the other sort of development projects that um we've got going in the background are more so things that link to what I've just described in the vertical farming world. So that, um, you know, rather than just getting your hands dirty on out in somebody else's back garden, these are uh, looking at ways to grow food in an individual level through hydroponics, for example. Okay. So, um, I don't know if you've covered hydroponics in previous episodes at all. or I haven't. No, just give us a little summary of, of what that is. Yeah. So the, the essential, um, formula is that as opposed to a plant sitting in soil, and with the roots spreading out through the soil and then you water the soil and it gets through the roots, you just have the roots hanging in usually a little netted basket where they're floating in a container of water. Yeah. So that in a, in a sense is its simplest form. Um, so that's just a, that's a method called the Kratky method, which is just water, roots, and you can add a little nutrient solution to it, which is just a sort of very fine mix of all the nutrition they need in order to yeah. grow big, essentially. So effectively, you're taking the soil out of the system and you're just running this Correct. liquid medium over and the, one of the to, to feed the Exactly. Plant. And one of the benefits is that you, uh, it might seem mad, but you use 90% less water by doing it this way because you're, the, the water and the nutrients are getting to the roots so efficiently by just sitting directly in it um, ah. that it... I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, and, that, <laughs> so, and that increases. Yeah. So the, there's a few different, the big vertical farms won't be using that in its simplest method. What they'll be doing is a sort of subsection of it called aeroponics okay. um, or aquaponics. So I've heard of aquaponics, yeah. Yeah, so aquaponics is a bit more um, back to basics. It's a bit more natural. It's where you have yeah. a, a separate tank of water that um, has fish in it. Usually it's tilapia. And you feed the fish. I was going to say you do it alongside fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And you feed the fish and, and essentially the, the fish waste gets fed through into the plant container and that acts as nutrients directly into the roots. And then that clean water goes back to the fish again. So it's a sort of a circular economy that works quite well, but obviously hard to do at a big scale because you're going to need a lot of water and a lot of fish. Yeah. And so the plants are basically acting as the filtration mechanism for the Correct. fish. Correct. Yeah. Wow, and then cool. the, the one that is yeah. probably taking off the most is aeroponics, which is 
Same as the basic method, except you've got pipes that missed the roots. So they're just hanging loose in the air okay. and they're misted regularly. So it's more efficient for the water. Brilliant. And the point of all of this new technology is really to try and minimize the kind of surface area of land we need to produce food. That's one of the big things, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. And it's bringing us closer to the source, essentially. So you can do a vertical farm with LED lights stacked up in some of the biggest companies in the world that are doing that, Aero Farms in America, um, or some of the big ones in Canada. They're doing it in massive old abandoned warehouses that they're repurposing. And they can be in the center of the city or maybe a few miles out. And therefore, the transport um, emissions are, are drastically reduced. Yeah, so it's far more sustainable. The carbon footprint of that food is much, much less. Um, and we're also not taking more and more and more space from nature. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Repurposing. Win, 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 win. Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the only thing is is the uh, that it takes money to do it right. So it, it, it's going to require yeah. a lot and a lot more investment before it becomes much more of a mass market appeal and it bec- before yeah. it becomes affordable for the average person you know, in a normal supermarket rather than just a, you know, Waitrose or Whole Foods or something. Yeah. And do you see there being a level of resistance against that in the same way as, for example, if you, if you talked about lab grown meat, obviously it's not as extreme. It doesn't seem as unnatural because you're using natural processes. It's just, you're doing away with the soil and the kind of footprint. But, um, would there be a, a hesitancy, you think, I think in, uh, uh, in the market? I think the proof will be in the taste for most people because yeah. essentially the product at the end is exactly the same. It's just how it tastes really, right? Um, yeah. So I think the more the more of a more accessibility that, that those kind of plants get and, it, and it's limited at the minute, right? So it's not just, it's not everything that you could grow hydroponically in these kind of um, mass scale systems. It tends to be microgreens or um lettuces uh salad stuff yeah there's a sort of limited range at the minute but that's that will gradually expand as it gets cheaper for the companies to do it yeah well exciting stuff yeah um but back to allot me um how does it actually work like what's the model if i was to be you know if i had a bit of land and i wanted to pop pop it on there or if I was a grower and I was looking for something in my neighborhood, how does the, the, the model work? Yeah, so if you had a garden space that you weren't using, um, some people do their front garden, some people put up their back gardens. Um, obviously, access is a big thing at the minute. So let's say, for example, you had a back garden and you wanted to rent out half of it. Um, ideally, um, you know, during COVID and these uh, limited lockdown times, you'd have like a side access gate. Um, so whenever you're listing the space, um, everything's clear in the listing. So it's free to list your space. You take some photos, you, um, click a few options like how it's accessed, um, you know, what the amenities are, if you have water available, tools available, give a description about it, um, a little bit about yourself. And that just generates a listing for anyone to see. So it's free to do that. And then on the other side, if you're looking for a space to grow, um, at the minute, because every space that we have is is being taken quite quickly, um, you just put in your name and your postcode and your email address. So we know whereabouts you are uh, as a rough idea and we know where the demand is. And we'll actively look for spaces in that area to try and pair you up with. Okay, great. And um, where does the money change hands? Who Who's paying for the service? Yeah, so it would be a, a monthly um, payment and you're paying... Uh, a lot of me who pays the the host essentially. So um, the price is kind of about, it, it varies uh, basically depending on the size of the garden we say. So you can set your own price essentially. Yeah. 
Um, so everything's completely transparent. Uh, and it's, essen- it's essentially the same business model. It's a lot me in terms of there's a commission for every uh, monthly payment that tr- passes between the green finger and the host. Yeah. Um, goes to a lot me in order to, you know, maintain our website and help us scale and get, get more spaces. But then I guess like the Airbnb model, um, I know myself from using it, that there's a level of um, guarantee or safety in that the host will have to conform to certain rules and, and guidelines exactly. you know, for offering their space. And you have a kind of a contract in place by using a lot me rather than finding some uh, random in the next street who potentially might change the rules down the line. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. There's, there's a safety yeah. in the user agreement that you know that both people have signed up to, um, you know, behave in a respectful way and, uh, and to go through the process, um, you know, once they both agreed. So if you're a host, for example, you can get request messages, like if you were the host of an Airbnb and you can accept or decline who that person is. So the idea is yeah. we have a bit of messaging on the platform that allows the, the two parties to communicate a bit. And even, you know, in some cases, they'll go down and, and see the garden, uh, have a chat and then figure out if it's right and, and continue or not. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, now, I believe, Connor, you've left your, uh, you know, safe full-time job to do this. This is a, a bit of a leap of faith for you. So you're hoping it, it works, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. How, how was that decision? Uh, it was um, it was a gradual decision, I would say. Um, I think yeah. it was definitely, like most things happening at the minute, accelerated by COVID. Um, yeah. You know, it it, uh, it was fortuitous in some ways because I'm, I'm now going from not having an option to, to work in an office to still not having an option to work in an office, but of my, uh, but really, really no backup at this point. Um, yeah. it was, yeah, I was just in the sort of habit of, uh, of being a, an architect and going through the jobs and going through the motions to a degree. I still, uh, was, um, how would I describe it? I was still enthused about my job, but I sort of could see down the line a couple of years of me doing something similar if I didn't change anything. And yeah. I saw that, um, Actually, what happened was I, I wanted to, uh, I knew that people were looking for a space more and more during lockdown. And I felt like now would be a good time to get a kind of measure of, of whether this would work or not uh, in, in a yeah. full-time way. So I asked for some time off from my uh, my architecture practice. And thankfully, they gave me it on furlough for a while. So it helps them out. Great. Um, and in those, I, you know, it was the three weeks minimum. And then I was straight back to it and it was super busy again. But during that three weeks, I really... Uh, realize what I could be doing, you know, if I fully took the plunge and, and give this thing a go for, for proper, because I've been doing it for part-time for probably about two years or so. Yeah. And I guess these things kind of trundle along very slowly if you're doing them as a kind of a, a side project or a side hustle. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, being able to pick up the phone and, and, and speak to people uh, about other kind of ways that we can get space in the city during normal working hours and not just at lunchtime yeah, uh, is a massive difference. Is a massive yeah. difference. Definitely. And have you had any um, kind of obstacles or, or hurdles that you've been surprised by or that have kind of been a big thorn uh, in your side? Or? Yeah. I mean, we, we had a small cohort of hosts that were signed up just before lockdown. And, um, you know, some of the hurdles that we came across with them was that actually now that they were working from home themselves and, and couldn't really do a lot else, they would be using their garden okay. when they hadn't been planning on it, right? So that they would actually convert their home garden themselves, which is great, no problem. But obviously that's one less host in the site yeah. to pair up with a green finger. So um, things like that, or um, you know, some hosts 
perhaps not feeling as comfortable, um, you know, in, in terms of spreading the virus and things like that, which yeah. is absolutely understandable. And, and we've sent out messaging about how, you know, we want to uh, do everything with respect and under the correct guidelines so that we're not, you know, creating extra risk for anyone at all. Yeah. Perfect. And um, obviously it's all kind of private landowners and things, but have you approached or do you see yourself approaching kind of councils to say like unused public land might be able to be listed on here as well? hundred percent. Yeah. It's it's one of the things that's really been an unlock over the last um, couple of months is the conversations that I've been having with uh, local councils, um, individual estates. So when I say council estates, um, you know, in London, there are so many, uh, 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, social housing, you know, modernist blocks where you've got these big grass lawn stretches surrounding the blocks and in the center of it that say no ball games. And, um, you know, for the most part, just get cut every couple of weeks, uh, uh, as you've said in the past. They're almost for nothing, aren't they? They're just not used to They're, they're just these uh, these massive opportunities. And that, that's that's what I've been trying to say to the councils. And and uh, what's been great is that some are actually, um, yeah, really, really keen to hear that. And, and we're already, you know, on track to kind of uh, look at these type of spaces in a different way. So it's been good. Brilliant. That's really promising, actually. Um, and kind of if you've listened to the podcast before, you know I'm all about kind of uh, natural, regenerative, Kind of food production mm-hmm. and wildlife friendly gardening and things are you going to put in place any kind of rules around types of growers or you know being organic only or anything or would that be too restrictive at this point yeah i think uh i think um I probably haven't uh haven't thought too much about whether or not you put in re- actual restrictions on, on growers as to whether or not they're using organic um, fertilizers things like that or treatments of soil um i yeah. think well, part of part of the uh, the projects in these kind of spaces will be to do, um, you know, community workshops for not only people who are actually signed up to take a specific plot and start growing on it, but just people from the surrounding area, people from the estate who just have an interest in it. We could do free workshops to engage yeah. people to uh, to get that conversation started, and like I said before, get it in front of more people. So. I think why not start right at the beginning with people are completely new to this stuff to talk about the benefits of growing, you know, organically versus putting organic lots of healthy food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, if you're going to go to all the effort of growing it in a council estate down the street from you, then why add all these extra chemicals that, that don't necessarily be, need to be there? Absolutely. Well, if I have time and you want me, I'm all uh, you for know, speaking. You know, I was thinking about... that and I didn't say it. I was hoping, hoping you'd offer, but yes, I will take you up on that. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk, to, talk, to, talk to me later. Okay. But um, yeah, I'm passionate about that. I think that if we're growing our own food, um, dousing it in chemicals just kind of defeats the purpose. I see it all the time with some of, uh, sorry now, older allotment tiers, but some of the old boys on my plot or on my site just you know very liberal with the slug right right yeah oh sean you've got an apple there you should spray that make sure you spray it before you know anything eats it and i'm like i'm gonna eat it why would i spray it (laughs) there's no point doing that it's like it's meant to be healthy food yeah very good um yeah so um i've seen on your website there's a few kind of uh people supporting you already and aboard this idea london national park city who i do a bit of work with um in the past and and uh, most recently as well are on board, are they? Yeah, they're they're um it was part of just the 
uh, an early stage of the journey of building a kind of network of support where I could go to or, or where partnerships could happen down the line. Um, and I yeah. think, again, now that I'm able to devote so much more time to it, those conversations are coming back up um, with groups like Incredible Edible in Lambeth or um, there's yeah. a, a community organization in, in my area called Thriving Stockwell, which involves various different groups from who want to grow food like the Lambeth GP food co-op and things like that. So there's, it's definitely great to be in with people who are like-minded and see how they're trying to, we're all trying to do the same thing is get more people growing food. And it's it's fantastic organizations out there. Exactly. When you just start. And there's plenty to be learned and, and um, garnered from working together and, and, and sharing ideas. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm always open-minded to, to what I can learn from other people and, and how we could help as well. Brilliant. Real. Um, so we'll finish up soon, but apart from kind of, um, you know, the big picture that we talked about, the stark climate and sustainability effects of, of growing local or purchasing local food, preferably organic, what are the benefits to people of um, kind of getting involved and starting their kind of food growing journey, would you say? Yeah, great question. I think it's, it's twofold, right? So there's, in the first way, it's very simple basics of you know, what's been heightened uh, due to lockdown of community, right? So getting people, giving people a reason to uh, get out of the house, even if it's not that far, to do something with their hands and meet other people, I think. Um, And that ties into the second point, which is mental health. So, you know, there's there's countless studies out there that talk about the benefits of being in, you know, spending as little as two hours a week per, you know, gardening will have significant improvements to your mental health. And that, yeah. that's got to the point now where even like the NHS are estimated over the next five years to prescribe something like 900,000 appointments for gardening as a remedy to mental health issues. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, the kind of social prescribing element and um, community gardens are a big part of that now, aren't they? And it's growing all the time. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think it's uh, social isolation, you know, has, has come to the forefront of sort of public conversation in a big way now. And there's lots of people that are clearly seeing the um, the beneficial outcome of doing some gardening, even if it's not food growing. And so, you know, yeah. you saw articles in The Guardian talking about how allotment demands were going up by 300% in some cases. And there's no doubt that socialization is probably the biggest uh, driver in that. Yeah. And we saw, you know, at the start of lockdown, every uh, every kind of online retailer ran out of seeds and compost Absolutely. and people wanted to get chickens and you know people really actually took an interest in this and, and hopefully it sparked a new generation of, of uh, gardeners and growers yeah people wanted to be more self-sufficient um in themselves and in their supplies yeah yeah so a final word of advice from you connor on um i know what your advice to folk who want to get get growing who don't have space, I presume that is allotme.co.uk. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to people who do have a little bit of space and want to get growing? Yeah, I mean, go to the same place. Um, rent it out as a as a vegetable garden to someone in need because I guarantee if if you're anywhere around London or any other uh, you know urban area in the UK and you've got space to grow food, we'll find you somebody who wants to grow food in it. Yeah, and also it's good to grow alongside someone else. Oh yeah, it? absolutely. So a- yeah, get get growing yourself if if you've got the if you've got the urge or any slight you know hesitation about it, give it a go because, like I said, even if nothing you know comes, no produce comes in your plate, the actual 
you know, activity of it, the catharsis and the mental health benefits of the clarity of just being in the garden or, or on your balcony and getting your hands dirty is, yeah, it's hard to, hard to describe. Yeah. My top tip for anyone who has, doesn't believe they have the space to grow food is a little window box and some rocket seeds and you will have rocket all summer. If you just cut it, it'll come again. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Really, really nice. So space shouldn't be a, a limitation for most people. You, you can always grow something in, in the most surprisingly tiny space, can't you? Absolutely. And there's a, there's, you know, that you asked about the development projects that we've got down the line and that's where we're, we're yeah. hoping to, uh, you know, before Christmas to touch into something that makes it a lot easier talking about some of those methods with hydroponics to grow anywhere. You know, one of the benefits of those big companies was that they're growing in all kinds of spaces and sometimes a bright windowsill is all you need. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, keep, keep an eye on our, um, our social media on our website for uh, stuff that might help with that as well. Great. Well, that leads me to my final question, which is time for you to plug it. Uh, tell us just in summary what it is and where people can find out more yeah. um, on your website and social. Yeah, great. So it's allotme.co.uk, A-L-L-O-T-M-E.co.uk. We are the Airbnb for gardens, specifically for growing food. So whether you've got space uh, and you don't know how to use it, or you've got space and you don't want to use it, stick it up because somebody else will want to. And there's such a demand out there from a variety of ages, demographics, interests in cities that want to start growing their own food. So you're getting involved. Yeah, brilliant. And you could make new friends, right? Exactly, yeah. You know, the social aspect of it is, is great. And I think the more, before I started trying to grow anything. And I, I joined, I started joining like Facebook groups for allotments and vegetable growers and things like that. And you yeah. get a sense of the community that is massive. Yeah. You know, you kind of think where are these guys hiding, but then as soon as you're into it, you realize that there are hundreds of thousands of people that can help you that, you know, are like-minded and, you know, evolved. and yeah, become a little bit obsessed in a really good way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. And presumably, Connor, on your social media, it's all, they'll get you on just a lot me if they look for that. On. Yeah. So Instagram, it's a lot me underscore UK. Uh, I think Facebook's the same. And you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, all the regular ones. Brilliant. All right. Well, look, it's a pleasure to talk to you. As I said, I was really excited by it. I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, obviously it is because you won an award for it already. Um, but look, I hope it goes from strength to strength and I will be watching on. And as I say, if you do want me to do any kind of talk on uh, growing alongside wildlife and nature, I'm more than happy to help out. Yeah, no, thanks very much. I appreciate you reaching out and having the conversation. Uh, don't be uh, scared if I end up picking up the phone very quickly because <laughs> my friends get surprised at how quickly I take them up on offers. So uh, I'll be No in worries. Cool. All right. Thanks, Connor. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye now. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Sean's Wildlife, uh, do hit subscribe and like. And if you can leave us a review, that will really help with uh, listeners as well. And if you would like to contribute anything to the uh, costs of producing the show, it's all self-funded. I would really appreciate a, a donation on the ACAST supporter link in the show description. So with that, it's over and out for me. Mm-hmm.